Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's bring in Jens Nordvig, shall we? Exanta Data, founder and CEO. Good morning to you, Jens. Good morning. What's the message for clients? On the last couple of weeks we've had, what are you telling them? We have to track what's going on with this virus. We have to see if it's spreading and uh, importantly, whether it's spreading outside the uh, Wuhan area, whether it's really like, is it an international issue or is it a regional issue? And uh, the data swings from day to day and data has distortions in it as well. So like they forget to report for a couple of days and then it spikes because they catch up for a couple of days. So we really have to weed out those things. And then we have to look at what is the stimulus that's being put in place to to counter the effect. So like Chinese interest rates didn't move at all last year and now they're suddenly shifting down a gear because the stimulus is expected to be very significant, right? So we have to weigh those stimulus uh, effects into the equation too. There's just a belief, Jens, I think, held by a lot of people that any risk to social stability in China is viewed as some kind of existential risk to the whole system. The leadership, the message coming from the leadership, urging officials Monday to, quote, achieve the targets of economic and social development this year, promote stable consumer spending. Is that a cue for this market, the more stimulus is coming? And do you think it can be effective in an environment with a situation like we have right now? Well, I I think there's no doubt that stimulus is coming. So we have liquidity injections, we have interest rate cuts. I'm sure there'll be all kinds of fiscal steps to make sure that whatever discontent is uh, generated by this is countered by money in some form. So uh, there's no doubt that this is happening. But on the other hand, we have major cities in China in total shutdown. Like, how's that going to last? Is it going to be a couple of days? Is it going to be a couple of weeks, a couple of months? That, I think, is the key parameter, right? Because if we project into global growth a couple of days is clearly not going to matter but if it's a couple of months for major regions it's a big deal right you had some great math in your research note this morning it was folks literally half a page where you just go to the first derivative of the various virus ratios and at least we can say they seem to be moving in a constructive direction yeah i I think uh, the, the key thing we're looking at is how is it spreading outside the wuhan area right and there the growth rates have been coming down so if we get confirmation that that's the trend that's the important signal. I think it's too early to say that they've come down to a level where we can be more comfortable. I think if you look at the literature from the health specialist, 12% is what they sort of expect is the natural progression of this thing. If we get below that, that will show that the policy measures have worked. And uh, we're close to close to that point, but not quite there yet. Jens, let's get to the nuts and bolts of what you do every single day. You help clients understand where positioning is at the moment, where the flows are going. You've got together with EPFR, EPFR Data. Talk to me about that partnership and what you're seeing together with them at the moment, just in terms of the flows, in terms of the positioning at the moment. Yes, yeah, so we, we built this new data set together with EPFR up in Boston. And uh, the idea is that we want to know what the real money community, which is really the, the biggest player in the currency market, is up to. Uh, so we go and measure in a very precise way what their positions are, including their derivatives. And that can give a sense of, okay, where are the crowded positions and where uh, are, are there some unloved places in the market that could potentially have some uh, medium-term bullish trends. So those are the things we look at. 
So this is talking about the price action in securities. A lot of people are looking at the fundamental effect that the shutdowns from the coronavirus will have on the economy. I was looking at a number of reports. Barclays coming out, downgrading their first quarter estimate for uh, China's growth by 2.2 percentage points. And this coming out, that China's car sales are likely to slump the most on record in the first two months of 2020, with sales set to fall by 25 to 30% in the January to February period. Is this being priced in? So we had one day that looked nasty in the equity market last week, and now we are recovering very dramatically uh, today. So I think uh, a lot of people are assuming that this shock is over. Uh, which I think is premature. But, uh, for example, I think that the effect that we've been the most focused on is tourism. Like, Chinese tourists around the world play a huge role in many different markets, especially in, in Thailand and so forth. If they don't come for several months, it's going to be major, major hits to those economies, like several percentages of, 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 of GDP. And uh, this, I think, is an effect where even if the factory is up and, up and running quite quickly, People are going to be afraid. There's going to be essentially quarantines and so forth. So I think these effects are going to be multi-month effects, and I don't think they're priced Well, let's put some of these issues together then. You talked about identifying the positions that were crowded at the moment. Where do you see the crowded positioning? What do you think is vulnerable? Like, so one thing we've seen in this data set is that uh, at the end of last year, there was more optimism about global growth. You saw equity investors actually trying to put on bets of a sort of global recovery, and they did that bet in Europe as well. And we can see that the equity investors were some of the ones that actually put on long euro bets. And I think one of the reasons why the euro has traded so poorly this year was that we came into the year with that overhang of long euro positions, and then we've had all the negative shock come out, and they've had to take that risk down. So these are the sort of tools we use to identify crowded positions. Take that one step further then. Are you looking for more downside in euro dollar? So I, I, I think everything is driven by the global growth sentiment. It comes back to Lisa's question, okay, is this shock really fully priced? So I would be much more comfortable saying, okay, we're about to have, have recovery if we had a proper correction in the equity market, but we just never got a proper correction, right? Because we had one day down and now we're sort of recovering already. So we're in a very gray zone here where risk assets have, have really not priced very much. There's some right. very, very intimate side of, of improvement fundamentally, but they're not convincing yet. Give me a currency pair because I've been short Tesla and that's worked out. <laughs> give, me a, give me a pair now with its opportunistic over the next 90 days. So I'm very worried about Thailand because they have the biggest tourist sector uh, in, in the Short world. Short Thailand. Uh, and, and in EM space, I, I think Mexico is still the most constructive story that I see out there. So that's, that's a very exciting question out there. Yeah, peso, peso bot. Bot. You ever traded that before? No, I've never done. We're going to do that chart. <laughs> so though and hold put on it a out. second. You're going to have a triple leverage cash fund with an overlay no, of peso I'm keeping bot. that solid. I'm, I don't know. Leslie Vinjamurray joins from Chattamouth. She's expert on American politics out of her shop in uh, London. Leslie, absolutely extraordinary. The major message from Kevin Cirilli in Des Moines was people are, are genuinely shocked over this mess in Iowa. Summarize it from the distant climbs of London. 
Well, you know, waking up here in London, I think we were all shocked because we expected to see, you know, what had been a very tight race among with multiple candidates sort of coming out of the top, whether it would be Biden or Sanders. Um, it was, you know, unclear. It could have been Buttigieg. And we woke up, of course, to the news that there is no result. We still didn't have a result. And and all of this down to um, difficulties, you know, with the local with the local caucuses and the, and the Democratic Party. So I think very distressing for many people. And of course, then there's also the news that multiple people seem to have been declaring uh, their success, multiple candidates. Which is humorous for a lot of people, Leslie, because they're declaring success without any results really to go on. Leslie, I'm just wondering, once we get the results, how much value will there be in those results? Well, you know, I think there's there's inevitably um, the narrative surrounding this will be of a botched and, and, and somewhat failed caucus. So regardless of the result, I think it's going to... Um, cast a bit of a shadow over those results and the delay of, is, is very significant people are moving on yeah. going into the state of the union address and new hampshire is you know it's is very soon uh lisa homeland security offered to test iowa caucus app that was in an interview on Fox moments ago. This is actually key. Uh, they made a point to come out and say that there was no interference. This had nothing to do with yeah. any sort of major glitch, uh, that this didn't have to actually affect anything having to do with the underlying vote count, talking about all of that, but still raising questions about the lack of technological sufficiency heading into the 2020 elections. How concerned are you about that at this point, given what we saw in 2016 and the questions still surrounding that? Yeah, I mean, I, there's there's clearly, you know, there, there are a couple of things here. One is that even though this, is, this appears to have a very distinct um, reason behind the, by, behind the debacle, it nonetheless sort of comes together with, with previous elections where there's been interference or where things haven't come come together smoothly and at a time when there's just tremendous uncertainty surrounding the democratic party the candidates and and a lot of instability i would say politically in the country Leslie, you're in the UK right now, and I'm just drawing on my experience of the British election this past December. If we get a progressive candidate that comes out of the caucuses, the primaries over the next several months, can they win on a national basis in the same way Jeremy Corbyn struggled with a national electorate but was really well supported by the party? Do you see any parallels here whatsoever? I mean, you know, a very different set of politics. People love to draw the U.S.-U.K. comparison. Sometimes it sheds some light. But I think the big question that, you know, it often doesn't, the big question for the U.S. is whether or not those, that part of the party that doesn't get the candidate they want, if it's a progressive candidate, do the moderates turn up? Do they unite behind that candidate? Do they support uh, the, the Democratic candidate? as a mechanism of, of moving away from the person that they don't want in the office, which is, which is President Trump. And this is, you know, this is something we simply can't know. Some of the stories coming out of Iowa were interesting, though, right? That people who didn't, um, with their candidate, didn't make the initial bar, a few people just went home. You know, not a good sign. Very hard to read broader results off that, but not a good sign that you wouldn't then turn, up, turn over your vote to another candidate. So I think this is... You know, this is the big question. Will there be unity around a candidate when, when one is finally selected?
There's also a question of what trade uh, policies will result from the different Democratic candidates. When it comes to China, certainly, people have this feeling that it really won't be necessarily better for China with a Democratic candidate, whoever he or she may be. There is a question with Europe now that that's the front and center with some of the trade discussions of which Democratic candidate seems to be the best one to deal with. Do you have a sense of that? Well, I think there is a concern not only in Europe, but certainly in China, that a Democratic candidate could take a much stronger line on China, actually calling for those deeper um, reforms that President Trump has, has paid lip service to, but really hasn't moved the needle substantially on. So a progressive candidate, I think, uh, is more likely to, to take a much harder line. Uh, you know, a, a sort of anti-free trade position is one that's has deeper roots in the progressive part of the Democratic Party, certainly than the Republican Party prior to this president. So those are very real, very legitimate concerns. But at the same time, you know, we're not seeing a a very serious articulation of what the strategy would be um, on China coming out of Cut me out of the Can I just translate, John, from the English that progressive is another word for liberal? <laughs> we just changed it a couple of years ago. Well, I think it's aggressively liberal when you're looking at the likes of Bernie Sanders. And let's talk it. about let's talk about the elephant in the room, shall we, Leslie? Let's talk about Bernie Sanders. Can he unify his own party? Never mind the country. You know, it, it is another one of those one million dollar questions that nobody actually knows. Which is where Tesla's going to be. A lot of there's a lot of skepticism. Um, I, you know, I when when we move forward towards Super Tuesday, yeah. uh, we'll have a lot we'll have a lot more answers then. But I guess I am uh, I am I have yeah. concerns. Let us know when you get Iowa's results, Leslie Vingemarie. Thank you so much with Chatham House. with us for an incredibly important discussion now on the state of what we do all day, which is the media we're plugged into. Michael Nathanson is with Moffat Nathanson. Michael, I've got to go first to your colleague, Craig Moffat on Comcast. Hugely uh, interesting this morning. You go to a buy on Comcast. And am I right to say that the part of Comcast that's Nathanson-like, which is the valuation of their news and entertainment assets, is worth zero? Is NBC Universal barely valued within the valuation of Comcast? Right. Good morning, Tom. Yeah, that that's our call. You know, Craig has been rightly negative on the media side of NBC of uh, Comcast, but at some point it just got ridiculous. And at, at this level, we think, given the value of cable, cable assets, the entertainment assets are literally trading for free. So we switched we switched courses and upgraded it to a buy. After a couple of years of really being um, negative on them, post this, you know, post a bunch of deals that we didn't like. Forty-two dollars a share, forty-three dollars a share on Comcast. I'm sure you'll lift the stock. What's the value of NBC Universal and the all-in price target Moffat Nathanson has? Well, you know, if you look at where, you know, it's, it's not Disney because Disney, Disney, we'll talk about it a bit, has really changed their narrative. But if you said you know, seven, eight, nine times EBITDA, you probably have another, you know, 10, 12 bucks of value at Comcast just by getting NBCU at a fair value. So it's, if you look at where Charter's traded to, which is a pretty good proxy for cable, you do have a free pass for NBC. It, it, it's a very, I think it's very straightforward, makes a ton of sense. And people are looking for things to buy, as you all know. And uh, this is a pretty good name for us. Michael, can we talk about price just quickly. I had an email from yep. Hulu a couple of months back 
hiking the price of my monthly Hulu package. Oh, here we go. Quite aggressively. <laughs> Always got to make it about me and Hulu. And Mike, Lisa, I sat there like thinking, chime in here at, what point, provider. at what point do we meet, meet an inflection point where I just sit there and think, you know what, I'm just going back to cable. What's this about? Yeah, John, you know what? That This past year, that inflection point has come. I would have said to you, and, and Tom has asked me this for years, What's the, what's the future of cord cutting? We'd say it's a drip, 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 negative 1, negative 2% cord cutting rates. This year, it's going to negative 4, negative 5, because people are now seeing their bills rise, and on the margin, they're either cutting the cord or they're, they're going back to their you know, traditional ways of watching TV. But the mistake the industry's made is that they've just taken pricing up on bundles to a level that's just too high. So... You know, we're seeing that your your worry play out more broadly across the ecosystem with cord cutting really accelerating into 2019 and 2020. Michael, there's then a question sort of implicit in that. Is the model going to continue to be purely on subscription fees or will there be a shift to an advertising supported model? And I'm thinking on the heels of the Super Bowl with a record $5.6 million commanded for a 30-second spot, at what point will streaming command similar types of, of prices uh, to sort of support these? Okay, so so... There's a ton in, in that answer, Lisa. What I'd say to you, to John's first question, we're going to have a lot, a lot fewer people subscribing to pay TV. The pay TV core user is going to be a sports and news fan who you know, will be a bit indifferent to pricing. Then there's going to be a layer of people who buy things on demand. And that's your question about advertising supported video. That's a growing field. It's called AVOD, and you're seeing more companies pushing uh, advertising video on demand support a business model you won't for many years there's no way you'll ever build the reach that you have in tv but it's a way to find consumers to add back that that decline of linear viewing in a new model called avod where's your value michael nathanson right now i mean disney's had the eiger run off their streaming pricing and disney plus but which is the security that's an uncommon value now other than moffitt's comcast call today well, you know, Tom, I mean, it's, last week I spoke to John about, about Facebook. I'll say the same with Google. I think those FANG stocks have reached a level. It's really hard to pound the table on the FANG stocks. You know, we have Disney with another 15, 15 bucks or so, and so you'd say you know, you're running out of room there. The problem we have when you look at my sector is that there's a, there's a lot of value names. Viacom CVS, which you pull up the charts, been decimated, Discovery, um, the problem we, we see is that those businesses are under so much structural pressure that it feels like a value trap. So we're having a really hard time finding great value in businesses that we think are sustainable. That's why Comcast makes so much sense for investors. There's so so few places you can point to with sustainable growth and a value and evaluation that's attractive. Michael, just to turn to the issue at the moment, just to wrap this conversation up quickly, if I may, yeah. the Walt Disney Company, the theme park in China. What is happening right now, and how material is it for the company? It's not very material. You know, they already warned on Hong Kong when the year started because of the rioting. You know, Shanghai is a new park. It's not, it's not a meaningful contributor to the company. Um, it's, it's, it's not a major issue. If they had a better box office slate this year, you'd be concerned about their inability to have, have people attend Chinese cinema. At this point, this is not a major issue because the parks are so small. The, a broader question, though, is U.S. parks, and will there be a slowdown in U.S. parks <clears> consumer <throat> spending? You know, that's that's something that we d- we haven't put into our model yet, but that's yeah. always a concern with Disney. Just 
the cycle, and how many more dollars will people spend at U.S. theme parks? Michael Nathanson, uh, this morning, as he and Craig Moffitt uh, put a buy on Comcast uh, on a sum of the parts uh, uh, model. Get that research, of course, from Moffitt Nathanson. We now try to drive forward an intelligent conversation on this virus with Dr. Fauci. Anthony Fauci is out of Brooklyn. He's out of the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester and Cornell, and he is definitive on immunology and definitive on how the body reacts to these bad things called viruses. We're thrilled he could join us right now. Dr. Fauci, what is your knowledge of how people get sick from this terrible virus. What does it actually do to people? Well, it's a respiratory-borne virus, you know, in some respects similar to other respiratory-borne viruses, but it's of a different broad family. It's called a coronavirus. And what it does, it has the capability of binding to a receptor on cells that are in your lung and your lower airway. And that's the reason why the disease is primarily a disease of pneumonia. So the people that you're hearing about who are getting seriously ill in China fundamentally are people who are winding up with pneumonia. Very, very right. serious, yes. So that's the mechanism. It's, do, it's do, you have, do you have any optimism, Dr. Fauci, that antibiotics against the bacterium pneumonia can help staunch the deaths are we fighting just virology, or are we fighting also the bacteriology that follows on from it? That's a good question. And uh, talking to our Chinese colleagues and seeing the case reports, it looks like this is primary viral pneumonia. I'm sure that every once in a while you're going to see people who are seriously ill in the hospital who get a secondary complicating bacterial pneumonia. But the driving force of this outbreak is virus and viral pneumonia and not bacterial pneumonia. The CDC came out yesterday uh, warning, saying that they were preparing for a pandemic. It's not there yet, but saying as if uh, it will come to the United States. What's the tipping point in terms of people, in terms of countries, that qualifies it as pandemic? Yeah, one of the things that I think it's easiest to understand is what we call uh, persistent or sustained transmissibility from one person to another to another. Like, for example, in the United States, we have 11 total cases, nine of which are travel-related coming in from Wuhan, but two were individuals who were close contacts of these individuals who came in. But it isn't sustained. In other words, it went from a person who was infected to another, but didn't go beyond that in a second, third, and fourth generation. We're seeing that in China. So China clearly has an epidemic. But the countries to which uh, have received uh, people from China with travel-related cases, we don't yet have widespread, multi-country, sustained transmission. When that occurs, then you're going to see the official declaration of this being a pandemic. Since we don't have that yet, Doctor, I just wonder to what degree travel curbs and the kind of travel bans that we're seeing coming from various countries at the moment can be effective. What do you think of them? You know, it's really controversial. In the past, it has been clear that if you do those kinds of things, there is the possibility that there may be deleterious uh, unintended consequences. However, this is such an unprecedented situation 
that it really is too early to call. But I can tell you that mm-hmm. if you have a conversation with health officials, there'll be people on either side of that. Dr. Fauci, when you joined NIH in 19, uh, uh, I, I guess in the 80s, I, I want to say. No, it was the 68. The 68. Okay, so that was a time of the Hong. I forgot how aged you are. You're well preserved for your age. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Fauci, when you go back to the Hong Kong flu of 1968, are we reacting to this influenza this virus because of our modern news flow communication transfer of information totally different than we did in 1968 when it was a quieter news time you know there is some validity to that uh statement that you made uh but it isn't completely explained by that i think it's better to explain to the listeners that when you're dealing with influenza, influenza is something we have some familiarity with, whether it's a severe influenza year, a light year, or what have you. But when you're dealing with a virus to which you have absolutely no precedent to figure out what this coronavirus might do, then you have the added, uh, you know, fear and anxiety of the unknown. I mean, a question that I get asked more often than the 1968 a pandemic, which you're right, was truly a pandemic, and there was clearly much less of the kind of global concern that's expressed in the media. I mean, there was concern on the part of public health yeah. officials, but it wasn't the kind of daily 24-hour news cycle that we saw. But people ask, you know, we're in the middle of a flu season right now. There are about 10,000 people who've died this year from flu, which was a plain old flu, about 100,000 hospitalizations. So why are we paying so much attention to this coronavirus. And the reason is most people have a greater fear of the unknown. And the fact is we know that in March and April of this year, the flu will go down dramatically and there'll be very few cases. We don't have any guarantee of where this coronavirus is going to go. And that's the thing that's frightening people, the unknown. Hugely valuable. Anthony Fauci, thank you so much. Dr. Fauci, of course, with the National Institute of Allergy and infectious diseases. Paul Sweeney came in and threw me the Gene Munster research report. He said, Tom, read this one sentence. So I'm going to read this with full punctuation to get everybody going. (laughs) We see the logical tech comp is Apple. I knew you were going We there. believe there's merit to that view, and the company's valuation should be viewed in that context, period. Apple, period. Why is Tesla like Apple, a wise one? Gene Munster with Loop Ventures with us. Gene, why is it the next Apple? Um, because it's a combination of hardware, software, and services. If you think about the large tech companies, Apple is the only one that offers those three. Long time for the last decade has been largely penalized for that hardware piece. In the last year, Apple's multiple has moved up as investors have gotten more confidence that doing those three pieces, hardware, software, and services together, creates a sustainability. And that Tesla, it's the same business model. It's not just building cars. It's a computer on wheels. That's the hardware piece. Then, of course, that there is the, uh, there's the, the, the software piece around, for example, full uh, self-driving and just uh, advanced autopilot that you pay $7,000 for. And then there's a services element that they're building into anything from insurance to their charging network. And so uh, I think that there is a, a similar piece to it. And 
I think what it really represents, that view, is a shift. And, you know, we can talk about what's happened with the stock and where it's going, but this general shift of thinking about this is a car company and using comps of Ford and GM to uh, a comp like Apple. So, Gene, let's go to spend a minute or two just on kind of the recent price action. Stocks up, you know, almost doubled just in the month of January, up 20% yesterday, indicating another strong surge this morning. How much of this do you think is kind of technical short interest covering versus people just kind of opening their eyes and saying this is a tech company? I think it's 70% of the latter of this is a tech company and uh, 30% short, in, uh, short covering. There is uh, still about 14% of the float that's short. That Those numbers actually understate the, the percentage uh, slightly. It's probably more like 17% because Elon owns 20% of the company, and he doesn't offer those shares for borrow. So uh, it's But that short interest really hasn't gone down much over the past few months. And uh, so I think it's more about the fundamental piece. I would uh, think about this when you look at, uh, this view that the fundamental piece is the, the biggest driver of the stock is, in some ways, uh, this is historical, what's happened with the stock in the last uh, few months. Um, I've been doing this for a while, and I can't remember a story like it. In other ways, the, the presence, the lead-up to this over the last few years was also historical. The, the amount of, um, uh, of, uh, of batter, banter between the bulls and the bears, I think there was a lot of positive uh, advancement that Tesla had made that was really not being reflected in the stock. And so in some ways, the move that we've had up to where it is going to open today, this is just kind of catching up for, I think, probably what should have happened over the past few years. And then there's the question, where do we go from here? But in some ways, this parabolic move is uh, somewhat understandable. Hey, Gene, I'm looking at the ANR function on the Bloomberg terminal that tracks analyst recommendations. Eight buys, 11 holds, 18 cells. Is this a case where the tech analysts are on board with the story, but the auto analysts just can't get comfortable with the valuation? I, I think it's the auto analysts that uh, are opening up to this view that it's a tech company. I, I think it's still largely covered by auto analysts. You don't see uh, Apple analysts, for example. Well, there's a few of them, but for the most part, aren't covering uh, Tesla. But I think that, that, uh, I think that the traditional analysts that cover it will have to make a decision here whether they want to continue to cover it or generally think about this as a tech company. Gene, okay, you're selling me on a tech company, but the fact is it's automobiles driving down the road. On a 90-day conference call basis, is a number of units sold of their cars still the demonstrable statistic? Yes, uh, that's a critical, that would be the critical uh, piece, but uh, you have to look at it not just in the context of a quarter. I'm not trying to build some uh, some cushion for them in any given quarter, but you need to think about these trends. Uh, they're, these are massive trends. We're talking about the uh, car, the automotive industry really hasn't changed largely for the last 100 years, and we're talking about uh, a, a total shift out to autonomous vehicles is where we're ultimately going. Okay, but, but that takes time to get there. Do you have a model of what unit sales are going to be in the next 180 days, or if you don't? What happens if they stumble? Well, if they stumble, uh, the, let's maybe just focus in on the March quarter. They, uh, as far as the model for the, the full year, they've talked about doing greater than 500,000. Previously, they had said greater than 465,000, so they had kind of inched that target up when they reported their quarter last week. 
but the, uh, they didn't give a ton of context to how to think about this quarter to quarter. And so uh, the uh, analysts could be ahead of themselves. The numbers are still kind of figuring themselves out, uh, shaking out for the March quarter. But let's take the, the case where uh, the company misses the March quarter and then talks about uh, still confidence in that 500,000 number. That miss would be a negative. The stock, given what it's done, would be down. But uh, conversely, if you, they, you come back to the June quarter and then they beat on that number, uh, then the stock would, would regain that. So I think what we're, we're getting into is uh, it's still going to be a controversial story. And I, would, uh, I think that a miss would still be viewed negative, but I think it misses the bigger arc of what's going on. So, Gene, just real quickly, what's the competitive landscape for them? Is it Apple or is it General Motors? Uh, neither. Uh, probably, yeah, probably more Apple than General Motors. Uh, unclear really? what Apple's ambitions are in cars. It just, I for a long time oh. prophesied that Apple would do a TV. That never happened. I, I want to be careful about uh, what they're going to do in automotive. I think they will have some play in automotive. But General Motors is uh, structurally uh, in, a, in a tight spot. And another thing I would add is I think if you think of the automotive industry over the next 10, 20 years, there are large companies that have been around for a long time that will – be on their way uh, on a clear path to not being around, right. or if even around at all. Hey, Gene, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your thoughts. Gene Munster, Loop Ventures Managing Partner Analyst, giving us his very informed thoughts. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.